Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. pretty easy for us to slam Thomas for his doubts about Jesus' resurrection. After all, Thomas had seen the wonders of Jesus' miracles, including three different instances when Jesus had brought someone back from the dead. Maybe Thomas thought that while Jesus could do that for others, he wouldn't be able to do it for himself, whether being God or not being God. Fact is, though, Thomas is a pretty lucky guy a blessed guy, even with his doubts. He didn't hide his skepticism. He didn't go along with the crowd just to be agreeable. He clearly states that unless he sees Jesus for himself, he isn't going to accept the resurrection. Now Thomas is very fortunate because Jesus was not done making post-resurrection appearances. If his faith and ultimately his salvation and eternal life were dependent upon seeing his Lord raised from the dead, then Thomas is incredibly blessed. How tragic for Thomas if the Lord had not returned to the upper room a second time and he had been left in his unbelief. But thankfully, Thomas's doubts fit in well with the Lord's plan. In his coming to belief once more, we too are blessed to have John's account of this additional appearance so that our faith may be strengthened too. Jesus comes back the week following his initial resurrection appearances. He knows that Thomas has expressed his doubts, and he calls Thomas forward. Touch me. See that I am real, Jesus challenges. Yeah, Thomas is one lucky man. We aren't quite so fortunate in that regard, are we? Nor were those in the early church who were brought to faith by the teachings and the writings of the apostles, including those who heard this account from John's Gospel. Nor have generations and generations of Christians since been so lucky as to see Jesus so clearly and so prominently in the flesh, the crucified Christ, alive and well. No Christian since the apostolic time has expected Jesus to return in the manner in which those disciples saw him. For it is his teaching that when he does return again, it will be in the full glory of God for the judgment of the whole world. We trust, though, that the witness of the evangelists and the apostles are true. We follow in faith, and we communicate that same truth to our children and to all that the Lord did rise again and show himself to these early believers. Upon this truth rests the confidence and hope of the Christian faith. Without it, everything else is meaningless. John's account of this episode is not written for Thomas's benefit, at least not for the benefit of his faith, and just as certainly it was not written to shore up Thomas's reputation. After all, the Gospels are not afraid to paint the disciples in a negative light when it's showing the reliability of the written record. Just ask Peter. John instead records these events for those, like us, who have not seen and yet must believe. By it, we can be led to take Jesus at his word and trust that he has indeed risen from the dead. We don't have to experience those doubts like Thomas did, but instead we can take comfort 
and have confidence. But we do experience doubt, don't we? Even though this story, including those words of Jesus that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe are often used to encourage and even chastise those whose faith might be wavering, I'm not so sure that's such a good idea in every case. Of course faith is good. Likewise, doubt or a, a lack of faith is bad. It's even condemning if we are left in such a state. Yet, even though we didn't have the experience of seeing Jesus risen from the dead, we must believe anyway. If not, then we are expressing doubt about our own eternal life and questioning the declarations of Jesus himself. It would be hypocrisy for us to confess our faith in Christ and yet hide the fact that we still have some doubts from time to time. We might be embarrassed to admit this, but it is a sin that we must confess and repent of regardless, like any other sin. There is nothing gained to be hiding by, behind our quiet doubts, and there's no merit in lying about it. The reality is, most people in the world today, particularly in those in advanced cultures like our own, where so much is dependent upon science and technology and proof of data and observable results, we're doubters at heart. We're very much like Thomas. You've heard others say, and I bet you've even said it yourself, you have to see this to believe it. Now there's certainly a place still in theology and in the work of the church for what's known as apologetics. That is, the art of constructing a line of reasonable argument to convince people that there is evidence which supports the teachings of the Christian faith. What's missing from apologetics, though, is the simple fact that reason and debate and evidence are never going to create faith. Faith itself requires trust in that which is, at its essence, unbelievable to fallen humanity. Faith can only arise where God's work, through word and sacrament, overcomes our fallen nature and injects the seeds of faith and makes them grow according to his good pleasure. Only when one has faith can then he or she begin to intellectually come to grips with the evidence which the scriptures and other useful Christian writings provide about God and his plan for mercy and grace. Several years ago, a, a very wealthy man offered a large monetary reward to anyone who could provide him irrefutable proof of the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews and others in the days before and during World War II. Now, it wasn't a problem to bring forth many, many eyewitnesses to these atrocities, some of them even survivors of the horrors of those death camps. Likewise, photographs, some taken by the Nazis themselves, others taken by Allied troops or journalists in the days and weeks following the liberation of these camps, were plentiful. Even so, the rich man rejected all this evidence. He claimed that the eyewitnesses and the survivors were liars involved in a mass conspiracy. The photos easily faked, he said. No matter what, he rejected the evidence as unacceptable. No one who has closed his or her mind to an idea can accept proof to the contrary because impartiality has been lost. You and I aren't impartial either. Plenty of times we don't trust what we see or we hear or we read in the world around us, even when others do. The fact is we pick and choose evidence selectively to demonstrate the point that we want to make 
or to arrive at the conclusion that we want to reach. We're skeptical or even rejecting of everything else. There's good reason for that, of course. We have learned that politicians and reporters, business leaders, educators, even our own family members, often play loose and fast with the truth. We discover time and time again that reality is often a great deal different from what we've been told. Without a fair degree of suspicion and even skepticism, we may be betrayed by our political leaders on both sides of the aisle, hoodwinked by financial advisors to whom we entrust our investment. And we can even convince ourselves that our, our own children couldn't possibly be disruptive or irresponsible at school. So a questioning attitude isn't always bad, properly directed. It's quite a bit different in the realm of faith, however. In faith, doubt is the enemy, isn't it? What then should we do? Is it possible to be confident and sure when confessing Christ crucified and resurrected, especially in a world where truth itself isn't the same thing to all people? Can we be certain of anything? If so, how? If we insist on having all of our questions answered and all doubt driven away, then we're becoming slaves, not of the truth, but slaves of certainty. There are both truths and untruths that can't be proven, given our human limitations. Like Thomas, if we insist on proof of the, every truth of the Christian message, we're not exercising faith. We're exercising blasphemy. We're calling God on the carpet and demanding that he show himself to us in a manner in which we'll be satisfied. Where's the faith in that? Where's the trust? If Christianity were perfectly provable, why would there be a constellation of false faiths orbiting around it, all of them teaching and promoting greater or lesser errors? It's important for us to remember that doubt and faith are not opposites. It's more accurate to say that the opposite of faith in God is not doubt, it's faith in something else. It's at constant danger of having any other God, large or small, ahead of him. Often doubt merely becomes a waypoint on a journey to a still deeper faith. Doubt is an element, perhaps even an essential one, which serves as a catalyst to shape our faith, to make it react in a certain way. You may have had the experience yourself where, after a period of wrestling with doubts and fears about your faith and your salvation, even about your very relationship with a loving and merciful God, you've then emerged with a deeper, stronger, more resilient faith. By asking yourself the tough questions and then seeking the answers that God has given you in his holy word, you may be led to a new openness to his will for your life. You need not run away from doubt and fear and frustration. As I said last week, if you worry that you've lost your faith, it's a very good indication that you haven't lost your faith. Don't flee from doubt, but understand that it is very likely an indication that the devil so fears your relationship with the Father of all goodness and life that he wishes to work particularly hard on prying you away from God. We wrestle with doubts because our limited minds cannot fathom all the wonders and mysteries of God. How can we comprehend the resurrection, for example? Thomas couldn't, and neither can we, having not witnessed it. We can imagine it. We can, by God's grace, believe it. 
but we cannot comprehend it. Can you imagine that a perfect, holy, eternal God can love and can specifically provide for and care for someone like you, a flawed, sinful, insignificant, and fleeting creature of the flesh? Neither can I. And when I begin to think that I understand that, and especially when I think that I might actually deserve that, I must repent, and so should you. How can God forgive you, forgive me, for all we have done and continue to do to harm our neighbor and to reject his will? We have nothing of worth to God, yet he values us infinitely, enough to trade his own dear perfect son's life for yours. Can you comprehend that? Martin Luther had intense doubts throughout his life about himself, about his work, about the nature and work of God. Yet all of his torments and all of his wrestlings of his faith, his tentatio, shaped him into a stronger and better servant of both Christ and neighbor. Even doubt can be a gift from God if he uses it to shape us and to open us up to a deeper faith. Locked, in the way, locked away in the fear of our own personal upper rooms, the resurrected Christ comes to us. Fear is driven out. Hearts are opened up. He shows us himself, wounded and pierced, dead yet made alive. Into flawed vessels he breathes his Holy Spirit and dispatches each of us to bring his message of salvation to people near and far. We wouldn't think of faith on our own, much less live it. We are too fearful. We would hide like the disciples from an angry and dangerous world. But Jesus has work for us to do outside of our safe little sanctuaries. Doubt and faith might seem to be incompatible things, contradictions even. Yet God doesn't try to rescue us from every little conflict we face in our lives, does he? Sometimes he uses them to test us, to strengthen us, and he lets us wrestle with concepts that are difficult and confusing. Think of some of them. A savior, both God and man. Christ, both with us and in heaven. God, one in three and three in one. Water that kills and makes alive. Body and blood and forgiveness and eternal life in ordinary bread and wine. If we want to eliminate doubts and have a neat and clean and easily understood God, is that a God worthwhile having? Or would it be better to have a God far deeper and broader and much more incomprehensible than that? If a stone tomb cannot hold your God within it, if the entire world cannot contain his glory, how can our minds fathom and restrict his love? We will never be able to fathom even a little bit of our infinite God. But Easter opens up to us and to our imaginations a whole new world of possibilities because the resurrection has changed everything. Everything that is but God. He alone comprehended our whole world even before the beginning of time. In Easter we find that God has it's still full of new and creative surprises, and that he will continue to enlighten us with them as we confront him in his word. As his disciples, we too share in his creative imagination, 
And we are given the task of conveying its wonders and its love to others. God is not finished with us, nor with any part of humanity. Though many generations have come and have gone since the resurrection of Jesus, in each one there has been a faithful fragment which has carried forth the message that he who has died for us has risen again and still lives. And he continues to provide life anew to all who trust in him and believe in his name. Through us, God makes himself known in Christ to others. He lives eternally, and therefore he is in stark contrast to the relentless tide of death and decay against which the world constantly shovels. God desires that all people have the abundant and eternal life that is ours in Christ. It is our present possession. It is inexhaustible, no matter how often or how much we share it with others. Our faith in Christ's atoning death and his glorious resurrection allows us to live a rich and abundant life in spite of the doubts that we will continually face. We see the continual and unchanging love of our Creator as he sends a renewal of life to us each spring and in each new child that he brings into the world. He is here among us, active and fresh. Knowing that, we see his fingerprints in all that is good. But it is not in our seeing that gives us faith. Rather, it is in our faith that enables us to see the hand of God at work in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts. That faith helps us to see more clearly the risen Lord and to point others to his cross, to his empty tomb, and to his saving font and his forgiving meal. May these truly be sources of life abundant for you, for me, and for all that he reaches through us. In Jesus' name, amen.